Hello, nerds! My guest today is Jonathan Herzog, and he was one of Andrew Yang's first 10 members of his presidential campaign. In fact, Yang tapped Herzog to move to Iowa to launch the Yang strategy in that state. Now, obviously, Yang ended up dropping out, but in this interview with Jonathan Herzog, we talk about how Yang built his early strategy. How did the Yang gang get so strong on Twitter to the point where they can make their own hashtags trend? And other insights to the early stage of that campaign. More importantly, we jump into Herzog's journey back to New York where he threw his own hat in the race. Last year, August 2019, he said, I am running for the congressional seat, the 10th congressional seat here in New York, which makes up a lot of the West Side and other parts of the area. But he's not going to have an easy run at it. He's running against 15-term congressional powerhouse Jerry Nadler. Took the, the seat there in 92, which I believe was two years before Jonathan was born. If Jonathan gets the seat, he'd be the youngest ever at just 25 years old. He's hoping to run and get elected on things like a freedom dividend, a thousand bucks a month to every American, a data bill of rights to, you know, keep consumers and have us keep control of our data and maybe tamper down some of the centralization of wealth associated with these multi-billionaires that run these corporations that use our data. Also, we jump into what blockchain could look like in the future, but none of this is going to be easy. His precinct has 720,000 total potential voters. A very few amount will actually vote. He needs 30,000 votes to win on the primary in June 23rd, but it's not going to be easy. He's fighting nasty lawsuits, a lot of courts, media disinformation campaigns, and more. So the question is, can Jonathan Herzog get 30,000 votes and win, taking down powerhouse Jerry Nadler? Well, let's hear from the man himself, Jonathan Herzog. So, Jonathan, I mean, I, you know, Iowa, for a guy that's at Harvard, uh, you know, they, they seem like two worlds apart. Did you, I mean, did you spend meaningful time in Iowa prior to moving there for Yang? So the answer was, was a no. Uh, the, the first time I had set foot was, was with Yang uh, just a couple of weeks prior. But the reality was, to your point about, you know, you and your work and your, you know, audience of, of entrepreneurs and builders is it's, it's really like we, we actually called it from the inside. We, we put together this um, Instagram, just like kind of the early employees called Startup Politics, because that's exactly what it was. You know, we were wearing 50 different hats, doing 50 different functions, doing the job of 50 different people, essentially. Um, and so everyone, you know, to your previous question, came from all walks of life with no political background, uh, just because the urgency and uh, the strength of the vision and the need in that moment uh, was was so strong. So paint that picture for me again. You you show up in Iowa. Are you also, besides your own precinct, trying to recruit other precinct leaders? What did you guys end up with penetration wise? Did you have a precinct leader for all sixteen hundred precincts? So this so going so this goes back to again the like fall of two thousand eighteen. Now at this point, Nathan, uh, you know none of basically I think we were one of maybe a handful of people who had declared in a field that ended up growing to twenty nine the largest field um, in, I think, democratic presidential history. Uh, so, you know, people you think of like Kamala Harris, Kirsten at all had not even declared at that point. Mm-hmm. So I remember, um, you know, it was um, Yang, myself and another um, team member. And we were at the Progress Iowa event in December of 2018. It was Andrew Yang, Pete Buttigieg, who had not formally declared <laughs> because everyone sort of declares an exploratory committee or they, they, they share some, um, you know, public speech indicating their interests. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Jeff Merkley, and maybe one other um, at that event. And right after, we got our first 1% in a national CNN poll. 
Um, and I remember driving back in the car with Andrew. And again, we are, <laughs> this was the scrappiest uh, campaign by, by any measure. But he's just elated after this 1% at the end of December for 2018, because he says, we have found product market fit. We spent a year and a half um, sort of building the foundation, getting this um, really businessman and entrepreneur from anonymity. Um, and Rogan was on the calendar for early of 2019. And um, yeah, it was really at that moment <laughs> where um, we said we, we found product market fit. And so Muhan has kind of laid out these five distinct phases of the campaign, mapping out uh, the you know almost three years of its progression. But at that point, there were no such thing as precinct captains. There were no such thing as even other team members in in, in Iowa. Interesting. Um, it, <laughs> the like day in the life essentially looked, on average, you know, I would get up, let's say five a.m., mm -hmm. drive three hours to a local uh, union hall, church, school, Democratic club meeting. Uh, there might be eight to ten candidates. Again, depending, you know, let's say early at the same meeting. Yeah, yeah. So you basically have these like cattle calls. So Amy Klobuchar would speak, Pete Buttigieg would speak, uh, Eric Swalwell. Again, there were literally 26 <laughs> like different campaigns at that point. And then I would get up and speak, make the Yang pitch, um, you know, get people to sign up, uh, hand out swag, answer questions, um, you know, speak to some of the press and then pack up shop, drive three hours, do the same thing in a different city halfway across the state. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what building person to person, county to county, um, event by event looked like in the early days. So why did Buttigieg, you know, you, I think Yang finished six in Iowa, 8,900 votes, but Buttigieg just did so well in Iowa. Well, what did you, I mean, you must've come to these cattle, your point about these cattle calls, you must've come across his people as you were doing this. What were they doing differently than everyone else that allowed him to finish so strongly in Iowa? Yeah. So there are a lot of factors in terms of the nitty gritty of the caucus process. So um, having been a, a precinct captain myself, what you saw was on the first alignment, so there's two alignments in the process, right? People kind of gather um, and they self-organize into different uh, clusters in the room, uh, declaring who their favorite candidate is. And then they have a certain 15% uh, viability threshold to allocate the delegates, um, the winnings of the, of the state. Now, after people lock into who their first candidate is, people have the choice and a chance to realign, to say, well, oh, my candidate wasn't viable. Um, you know, let's say you supported uh, Tom Steyer. Um, in, in our case, he wasn't viable. So then his- God bless him. <laughs> so his, his handful of, of, of folks get to decide where they go to realign. So you have the, the final count after the second round. And what you saw is Pete Buttigieg had the most significant gains. He was more people's second choice um, than almost anyone. And so he may not have had, uh, you know, the vast majority on the first round, but there were many, many people who said, I'm happy enough with Pete. And so um, realigned to him in the second round, which was the final count. But again, these are the sort of nitty gritty of the politics of the night of a caucus. And really the, the kind of sausage is made in the weeks and months leading up to that uh, mm -hmm. with the press and with the debates um, and endorsements and so on. Did he do something in the weeks and months leading up to that to make sure he, I mean, was that the strategy to be the best second choice once all these other people filtered out that didn't meet the threshold? So 
again, ultimately, you know, this this didn't uh, bear out um, in a in a win in the primary process, and so we're kind of seeing a whole reevaluation of the Iowa caucus as this decisive factor. Um, it really came into our consciousness because of Jimmy Carter um, sort of coming out of nowhere and being bolstered by it, um, and also with Barack Obama. Um, and being able to prove to voters um, in later states in the process, particularly voters of color, that you can bring um, the Iowa voters around you. So, you know, in this case, it ended up being that neither the winner of the Iowa caucus, nor the New Hampshire primary, <laughs> nor the Nevada caucus um, ended up becoming the presumptive nominee. Um, and it just shows you how hard it is to extrapolate from any of these events because we're running against Donald Trump. And so um, there are a lot of other factors at play. Um, but certainly, Pete had an incredible ground game in Iowa that led many, many people to be comfortable with him as, um, as their second choice or what have you. Math, make America think again. And <laughs> hello, nerds and Yang Gang and Blue Hat. I mean, one thing you have to have in today's political world is a very strong online organic game. You see some people argue potential candidates, it's bot driven. Others, you can tell it's truly organic. I want to know what you guys, because this is relevant to someone building a business or to someone okay. running for candidacy. How did you guys build the infrastructure to basically allow anything Yang wanted to trend on Twitter to trend almost instantly? <laughs> Well, so what's incredible, Nathan, is that again, we our our candidate literally started fundraising from his Gmail address book. Um, this is a guy who, you know, first generation American, the son of immigrants, um, had started out his career in entrepreneurship. His businesses had flopped until one took off, and then he his the like lion's share of his career was building Venture for America to help promote entrepreneurship in um, cities that needed a boost after the financial crisis. And so we didn't really have a, a whole network of connections and donors and, um, and capital and relationships to work off of. So really, the innovation was born out of the necessity, <laughs> um, where many of the people who were drawn to, to Yang and to the campaign came came to it from, again, these long form, substantive one, two, three hour podcasts where, you know, we would dive into the data and the fact that American life expectancy had declined for three years consecutively before Trump, before COVID, uh, the data that we saw this great divergence between GDP and the increase in the stock market um, and the returns to labor or even life expectancy itself. And so we had this really high need for cognition um, audience that then, to your point about having um, a brand identity around it, um, so much of being ganging and being um, uh, math and data friendly is, is kind of wrapped into people's identity and just essence of their being. So following the Joe Rogan podcast, that was kind of our, our big reveal and the big moment in early 2019. And in order to qualify for the, for the first Democratic debate, um, which was always the kind of first order goal in the early stages, we had to secure 65,000 individual contributions from American adults. And so we have these very objective metrics established by the DNC for polling and for fundraising. And so it was really a matter of 
how do we reverse engineer? We know we have these really specific explicit outputs and we know what our product is. In this case, it's Yang himself and the ideas and the vision of the campaign. Um, and then we just had to wrap that into an identity and a shared sense of community uh, because it just organically what it became, particularly given that um, all of the gatekeepers and sense-making institutions um, were not necessarily, <laughs> you know, um, including us in their, um, in their messaging. But okay, so there's a lot of candidates with great messages, right? But they never build the kind of online sort of yang gang, super aggressive, super into it. They pay a lot of attention following like Yang did. From what I'm hearing you say, you're crediting most of that to the message. These are math nerds, they're science, they look at facts as part of their identity. I just I just think you're skimming over, like there's gotta be tactics you guys did to actually activate that crew. So you would say something like, Yang is gonna tweet this at 8 a.m. on Thursday. Make sure you all retweet it fairly quickly. You know, these 10 people are power tweeters in Iowa. I mean, did you have that kind of infrastructure to, to push these messages forward in, in the form of hashtags on Twitter? So certainly as the campaign evolved, you know, there was this kind of distributed, decentralized snowflake model where you had uh, particular like nodes in the network. And it, it actually is interesting to your point, people have done some um, like graphical analysis of like where tweets come from, from the different candidates. And what you'll see is even for example, in the Bernie Sanders movement, there was a pretty centralized node from which the kind of messages and the retweets um, emanated from. Who, what was it? Oh, I mean, like the like Bernie Sanders account or the like designated surrogates of the Bernie Sanders. So account. it is the candidate usually, or the or the surrogates. Exactly, and then in in our case, what was different, and this is actually more paralleling the Trump uh, campaign's kind of digital um, approach, which was it was highly highly decentralized, and so you had lots and lots and lots of independent nodes and this independent sort of media network. Um, of people organically saying like, <laughs> you know, let Yang speak or um, the, these, 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 these hashtags that like ended up trending, even when he wasn't on the debate stage, ended up coming up organically from these decentralized nodes. Um, but over time, as you know, the months and, and years passed, there was more coordination around them. But that was one of the critical differences is that the message wasn't being controlled from the top down. Um, it was happening in many, 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 many different places across mm -hmm. the country. There's a lot of people that say ideas don't become something that gets, you know, mainstream without an opposite, right? Kind of like laws of energy, right? Nothing's destroyed, but you need opposites. How critical is it in a, in a political campaign to make sure there is a clear enemy to use to activate your following, even to the extent that if you feel like you don't have an enemy, you have to make one? So this is also a very perceptive question. And I studied psychology and certainly- This is why, uh, I was gonna say, you're, <laughs> this is why I invited you on, by the way, because I saw the background <laughs> and I'm like, he was in it. He was picking up some of these psychological things along the way, so <laughs> teach us. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you got it, which is the, the human mind is a narrative seeking uh, thing, entity, creature, beast. And so you see, um, Trump and the 2016 race define these lines very clearly, where 
there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering by the data and anecdotally across the country, right? And in, in our telling of the case, we automated millions of manufacturing jobs in particular in swing states across the country. And those districts ended up swinging from Obama to Trump. Um, and that was the theory of the case, that automation and the fourth industrial revolution was what was driving this sense of malaise and frustration. Now, if you look at the 2016 campaign, what were the two dominant messages? Make America great again. And essentially, America is already great. The thing is, the deaths of despair, the fact that suicides and drug overdoses from opiates had overtaken vehicle deaths as leading causes of death, and the Ponzi scheme level of inequality, these are all true. And so centering a campaign, a national presidential campaign around America's already great. And if you look at the data where the Clinton campaign won, we're disproportionately in cities that were winning from the sort of uh, globalization, neoliberal consensus. Um, and so in terms of, well, who can the human mind then um, blame or scapegoat? If it's not the Chinese, if it's not the Mexicans, if it's not the Jews, in our case, it was the robots. And I love this because um, A, I think it's empirically accurate. B, it feeds into our mind's need to find an easy, simple answer for the confusion and, again, the pain and suffering that runs deep and is real. But that target is not human. It is systemic, it's structural, and it is um, in the Amazon warehouses, right? <laughs> but John, <laughs> I was going to say, isn't, isn't it better with your psychology background, isn't it better in a political campaign to have a, a, it has to be a person, a being, you know, the Chinese government is fine, but like Nancy Pelosi is better, right? Like the media is fine, but Jim Acosta in the front row at the press conference is a better enemy, even if it only spans the week long news cycle. Don't you need people enemies to have a political successful campaign? It's certainly a lot more potent right? It's a lot more potent when you can rile up your base and call together um, all this um, energy, right? And vitriol towards a person or a group of people, particularly a group that um, has been historically <laughs> the, the brunt of, of, that, of that narrative. Um, that Isn't said, that a sad thing, by the way? <laughs> I mean, it's a sad, well, in my opinion, it's a sad question that I have to ask, but you look at all, like when you study successful campaigns, be it political or anything else, there have to be two sides. There has to, in an NFL game, there has to be the Redskins and the Cowboys. Like there have to be two competing. That's the narrative. I, I hear you. Um, I think to me, what was so empowering and yes, we did not um, win the white house, right? We did not win the presidency this time. But um, what I will say is, the idea of running a humanity first campaign, I mean, Andrew was, again, if you look at the, the data on this, it's, it's shocking. The only candidate who never attacked, never any ad hominems, never any personal attack against any of his competitors, um, or even Trump, or anyone who had voted for Trump. In fact, one of the things he said to the tens of thousands of former Trump voters who came over to support his campaign, um, many people I know, you know, very closely, um, he said, you count twice. Like, we're not here to, to vilify you. That doesn't get us anywhere. Um, we're here to offer a vision that you can see yourself in as well. And I hear you. It is very hard to do. 
because all of the incentives and forces from whether you're a politician, whether you're a media institution, um, or whether you're even a political party, um, don't necessarily align with um, lowering the tensions, with um, not offering that scapegoat, because there's a lot of incentives in place that are predicated upon that scapegoat. Um, it's challenging. Historically, it's challenging where if you look at structural change and what has enabled it, you're right. It has been war, Great Depression, um, great calamity, um, like the Great Depression in the last century. But part of our project, part of what we have to constantly work towards, because there's no inevitability, there's no natural order to history, there's no teleology, is to de-link, decouple crisis from structural change. We're entering the next Great Depression per the Fed. COVID has now killed more Americans than died in the Vietnam War. The CDC says a 9-11 death toll will begin every single day starting June 1st. But Jonathan, Our this time. is the crisis that could usher in UBI. Like, that's and a con- thing. Yes. And, and Congress has been on recess. That's the kicker, is that, you know, I, I, I'm running and I'm here and based in the city, in the district, in the state, in the country that has been the worst offender. No contact tracing, no testing, highest case fatality rate and infection rate in the world. And the former CDC director said that if New York City had shut down just 10 days sooner, 50 to 80% of all COVID-related deaths could have been avoided. So the level of institutional failure, collapse, incompetence, and corruption is at a scale we've really hardly imagined and fathomed. Jonathan, how do you, so to your point you just made about a minute and a half ago, how do you decouple regulatory change and crisis? When people are in a state of status quo that they feel is good enough, there's no incentive to do anything. When the headline is 3,000 new people dead every day and 9-11 every day, regulators are very incentivized to do something right now because they look very bad if they didn't their constituents. How do you decouple a crisis with real regulatory change? Yes, so... This is what we've been doing, what we've, what we've been going through the past week in particular, and I'll highlight a couple of instances. It involves holding people's feet to the fire, holding them accountable, and offering an incentive and a vision that, again, doesn't vilify them, offers them a way in, but holds their feet to the fire. Now, very concretely, you may have seen Andrew Gang, myself, and dozens of other delegates filed suit because the New York State Board of Elections, the New York State Democratic Party, and all of its leadership decided to cancel the presidential primary. Now, this was one week after our presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, warned that we have to be very wary that President Trump may use COVID as false pretense to postpone the general election. Why they, by the way, for my audience that doesn't follow politics, why'd they do it? Why'd they do it? Yes. So again, a fantastic question. Now, if you, they have many reasons. Um, They want to allegedly save the resources. They want to just hand the nomination to whoever they would like to without having a primary. Um, And I'll walk through these reasons in in, in just a moment. But um, we had Michael Sandel on um, our, our dialectic about a week ago. And without even having context about this lawsuit and this decision. He's, by, by, by all accounts, 
our country's greatest moral philosopher. He said, the most dangerous precedent that can be set <laughs> is anything that enables the president, our president, to postpone or cancel the election. And the New York State Democratic Party, the Board of Election Commissioners, did just that. I'm not a mind reader, so to your question, I don't know what reasons they had. I do know they just lost in federal court in the Southern District of New York, and the judge said, this is false pretense. The governor of New York had already passed an executive order making voting safe by mail. So any narrative or story otherwise that this would put anyone at risk is just bullshit. Yeah, people listening, Jonathan, right now are going to go, why did, okay, so you have people saying Trump's going to try and, you know, get around this next election by essentially using the virus to his advantage. And then you have the people he's going to compete against in New York <laughs> say, you know what, let's hold my beer. We're going to cancel it. There has to be a reason they did it. You've got to be in so, touch with what their reasoning is. Otherwise, <laughs> there's no way to figure out how to counter it. There, what was the reason? So I'll give you another piece of evidence um, that may just inform this very... Um, Come on, Jonathan, what is it? Okay, okay, here it goes. This past Wednesday, Nathan, we launched our first Facebook ad, our first digital ad, which has gone in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of registered Democrats in New York's 10th district, where I'm running, the west side of Manhattan and South Brooklyn. We're running to unseat Congressman Nadler, um, who's held the seat for, for almost 30 years. <laughs> Immediately thereafter, a targeted systematic disinformation campaign was launched where if you Google my name, Jonathan Herzog, on a computer and hit the news tab, you will see hundreds, thousands of false headlines um, improperly indexed through SEO manipulation to myself, Andrew Yang, and Jeff Curzon. These headlines are disproportionately related to murder, suicide, death, Russia, COVID, bodily harm, and Trump. And they're all run by local news affiliates owned by Sinclair Broadcast Group, which if you don't have any contacts on Google, learn more about them. They own 76% of all local news affiliates in the United States, and they're widely considered a Trump-affiliated propaganda arm. Not wildly, not wildly, by the way, one of the largest donors. Many of you guys saw during the presidential campaign, there was a viral clip that went viral where they basically took hundreds of local media stations and you saw all these different anchors in one shot saying the same thing. What made that possible was connections that Trump had to Sinclair Broadcasting Group, which basically could push all these messages out and make them look localized. My question to you, Jonathan, on this though, why would Sinclair Broadcast Group <laughs> support Nadler? Why would they help Nadler by suppressing your digital campaign? That doesn't make any sense. Nathan, you, the FBI, the Office of the Inspector General, the New York Attorney General, the country's best election, internet, and privacy lawyers, and citizens and activists everywhere are asking the same question. What's your best answer? I don't know. All I know is that this is under investigation for a federal crime and for federal election fraud. We have a primary in 40 days. The, the, the race, in this particular race, over $2 million has been spent. The field has narrowed from, from eight to three. And I have become, uh, at least in the past week, the singular threat and challenge to, the, um, to Representative Nadler's seat. Um, and... This, this lawsuit that we won this past week to reinstate the primary, 
to just give people the chance to vote is now being appealed in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And if you look at the brief, if you look at the filing, you have the New York Attorney General arguing to cancel the primary, the New York governor arguing to cancel the primary, the New York State Democratic Party, and this entire cast of characters. I don't know why. We I mean, Jonathan, <laughs> it, it, could, it could just be they are worried about a second wave, right? Without contact tracing, without testing, they're worried about a second wave. I mean, that is a legitimate thing they could be worried about. They don't want people walking well, into booths, even with mail-in, even with no mail-in. No one's walking into booths though, Nathan. The, the, the governor passed a, an executive action on his own doing weeks before, making voting safe by mail for everyone. If you're a resident of New York, no matter where you are, you, you can go to nycabsentee.com slash absentee. It takes literally one minute and you can get your ballot mailed anywhere, anywhere you are. Mm-hmm. And the other reality is congressional and state elections are happening regardless on June 23rd. So that's why the federal judge this past Monday said their argument was bullshit <laughs> because people are anyways voting. They're voting for congressional elections like mine for state assembly elections on the same day. Mm-hmm. I just think there has to be some logic to all this, right? So like if I am, first off, let's just take a step back for a second because we never give context to this. Where are you running? Uh, <laughs> and when did you launch your campaign? Absolutely. I am a Democrat running for Congress in New York's 10th district, which covers the entire west side of Manhattan and South Brooklyn. And so this covers Wall Street, all the investment management. There's some gerrymandering for you. A little chunk over here, a little <laughs> chunk over there, clear across the waterway. Just just to hit, you know, just to skip the over subway, that. yeah, <laughs> over the over the East River, um, and this is in many ways the the ground zero for all the forces that we've been talking about in the Yang campaign and in the Yang gang. Where again, this is one of the most educated, most liberal urban districts, one of the biggest winners on the whole from this new economy. But one in six people live in poverty, can't meet their basic needs. And if you've ever set foot on the west side of Manhattan, you know, on one side of the street, you have public housing and squalor. And on the other side, you have a luxury housing development, often sitting just vacant um, mm. as a foreign investment vehicle. So this is ground zero for the winner take all economy, the network effects, um, and uh, the effects of automation that are defining this era. We'll jump back, Jonathan, let me jump back to that in a second. We'll talk about automation. We'll talk about the plans you laid on your website, but I want to, I want to inspire other people, young people listening to do what you're doing. And I think a big part of that is demystifying the process. Totally. August, 2019, what's the next step you had to do in your particular race? Everyone has different state and local laws, but what was the next step you had to do after you announced in 2019 to make sure you could move forward? Totally. And I so appreciate it because this is exactly part of the goal. It's not about one person or anyone in particular. It's about having a wave of freedom Democrats, a wave of people committed to um, rebuilding, revitalizing, having a culture of entrepreneurship. You know, our generation is starting new businesses at the lowest rates um, in the, over the past nearly half century. So here's the like step by step of like what you got to do. So in, in, in Andrew's case, you know, he was running for president. Well, do yours because the young people listening are okay. going to be more likely to start at a local level gotcha. like you are. They're going to want to walk in your footsteps. Gotcha. Cool. So I went down the list and I Googled like, what are the things you have to do or have to be to run for Congress? So you have to be 25 by the day you were inaugurated. 
I'm turning 25 on May 25th, which is a cup, which is a half a year or so before inauguration. Check. You have to have been um, a uh, U.S. citizen or a resident of the state for at least, I think, about seven years. I'm a born and raised American, born and raised my entire life in the district. Check. Great. Um, and then there's one other, you know, depending on where you're running, I'm running in New York. You have to like be an actual like resident in that particular district by the inauguration. Again, check. Great. Then the process goes, I literally Google, <laughs> like, how do, how do you file to run for Congress? So there's FEC form one, there's FEC form two. And now there's some forks in the road because there's some more problem solving. So you have to have a campaign checking account. You have to be able to collect money somehow. Um, so then you're like, where do I go? Open the bank account. Um, it turns out in New York, there's a bank called Amalgamated Bank, which is a non-for-profit and will open you a checkings account very easily. But I did not know this. And so I went from Citibank to Bank of America to so on and so forth got stonewalled and gaslit and so on and so forth. Why? They don't want to open an account for you for a political campaign? Not for a challenger to a Democratic incumbent. Really? Yes. And so, yes. And so if you're running in a primary against a very powerful incumbent, you will find that anyone you want to get any services from, whether that be accounting or legal or banking, um, you will have a very hard time doing that because of what's called the DCCC blacklist. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee decided recently after 2018, where we saw a couple of people kind of um, fall through the cracks. You're talking 14th <laughs> district, AOC, 300K raise, she gets it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Where she had raised uh, less than one-tenth of her opponent, Crowley. Um, he raised three million. Um, he was slated to be the next Speaker of the House. Her campaign was floundering um, until the end of May when they released this viral video, after which they gain most of their donations. There's the same demo or the same dynamics where it's a highly liberal district, which has never faced the challenge in decades. And she won by a margin of 4,000 votes in her June primary in 2018, because no one votes in New York congressional primary. How many, how many, will, how many, your district, I think is 720 and uh, 720,000 in terms of the 2010 census, so maybe bigger now. How many of those people actually vote in the primary? 30,000. So 4%, less so, than 4%. Yeah. So how many votes do you need in your opinion, when you model and reverse engineer, how many votes yeah. do you need to win? In order to win the seat and unseat Jerry Nadler, we need 15,000 votes by mail by June 23rd. Okay. Interesting. So let's, I'm going to get into more of your pause in a second because there's a lot more to talk about, but let's keep this really tight here for a second. August, 2019, you announced, you go through all these things, you get the bank account, you need signatures. Uh, how many signatures do you need? Yes. Um, so every single different type of campaign, and this may be more to, to New York because the laws and rules here are particularly onerous, particularly um, corrupt, just frankly. And so for our congressional campaign, so we got Yang on the ballot from the end of December to the end of January. And the window for our congressional campaign was February 25th and supposed to end April 2nd. Note, COVID came online exactly at this moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we needed by law, before the rules were changed, 1,250 signatures from registered Democrats on the west side of Manhattan and South Brooklyn to get on the ballot. Because of the way the systems work, everyone knows, or if you watch the uh, 
think it's bring down the house that documentary on netflix um about the aoc win yeah you um, need way you need way more than that exactly. because it'll get challenged like heck exactly so you know you have to bring in at least like 4x or or, or 5x that is that the margin is that the margin everyone's modeling now is you should because of the, the the incumbents that will challenge you and throw every legal challenge at every signature and is it a legitimate signature either margin for error is now 4x whatever the requirement is yes wow so how many did you get Yes. Well, so here's the thing. So we, our target, and we were exactly on pace to hit 5,000, um, exactly 4X by the end of the period. But COVID comes online, um, at least on public record, about five days after signature gathering starts. Now, we call for an, an end to the signature process because the, the actual process goes as follows. You come into personal, physical contact with 20,000 New Yorkers. Because there's some ratio of like, you know, like you're making a sale of your software or anything you're selling, there's going to be some ratio of, of just like no's, of fuck yeah. you's, and, and what have you. So we're coming into close personal contact with tens of thousands of New Yorkers. They have to manually, in person, sign using your pen, witnessed by you, in close proximity. We say, well, this is putting public health at risk. After, again, we had already collected um, about 1,500 at that point. Um, of course, nothing happens. We, we, we get our gloves, we get our alcohol swabs, uh, we put our coats on, get back out there. Um, they end up, um, even though the New York City Health Commissioner and the mayor uh, and the governor alike said, all is good, business as usual, ride the subway, ride the bus, masks don't work. Um, this goes on for about two weeks until literally thousands are now dying. Um, Nadler, Cuomo, um, and the like get together, decide we're going to terminate the process early. And they change the requirement to only about 25% of the original or 30%. Um, so you only need 375 signatures. And you already had 1500. We had over 3000. Okay. And this was as we of had, what, like, this was as of like February. Uh, this, so this is like mid March. So like March okay. 12, 13, 14, like this. Okay. Now, um, I mean, I'm not sure if the if the kind of details of this are, are that interesting to you, but but just to kind of illustrate, I'll share one story, one part. Well, like, of this. did you? I guess my question: Did you get on the ballot? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we are 100% on the ballot, um, and but here's here's the here here here's the kicker: um, we were going to be we were going to have essentially a one-on-one. Um, uh, face-to-face challenge with just us on the ballot and Jerry because of this whole challenge process, right? Where you go line by line. Yep. And you- How many now with way less signatures required? Well, so we were going to have a, a, so we got someone, um, so the, the field has gone from eight to three, including us and Nadler. It was going to just be us and Nadler, but we were told if you file an invalidating petition to get the other challenger off the ballot, who has a fairly low ceiling in the district. This will be an up to six weeks in-person process with members of your team, members of their team, members of the board of elections. By that point, two judges had already died. One was in a coma. Members of the board of election staff um, had died as well. And we were told, do you really want to be responsible (laughs) for the possible death of of a board of elections worker? So, who is the third, by the way, Jonathan? Who is the third? The spoiler. 
Yeah, so there's there's Jerry Nadler, myself, and Lindsey Boylan who are on the ballot in the 10th district. The only, um, and um, so this is again just the context. Just the how many signatures campaign. did she get? Um, so we actually found about an 80 percent invalidity rate um, going line by line. Uh, because most of them were collected in the Bronx or Queens. Again, we're kind of getting in the weeds here. But well, no, I'm curious because this is, if I'm Nadler, I find someone like this on purpose to split the vote that might go to you. I mean, this is basically, I mean, you could predict this though. You're a smart guy. You're so, Harvard, number one. You know well, this is going to happen. Well, so here's the thing, Nathan. So there, there, there actually was someone exactly like that who basically started collecting about 80% of their total 400 signatures in that weekend after the announcement was made and the deadline to file was. And so we easily got that candidate um, off, off the ballot because they had only a tiny fraction of the ballot signatures. However, <laughs> this, this other candidate, because they submitted um, you know, about 2,500 or so, it, it, it kind of would have taken this more onerous invalidating process with members of the teams sitting across this table in person. Um, and so what what you described did actually happen. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, again, it just, it just goes to show you, um, (laughs) how at every single part of the process, um, and Nancy Pelosi said this herself, power is never given. It is always taken. And this bears out in every single way you could imagine. So take it, go find an old guy that's 70 that's going to split Nadler's vote, help him get signatures. I mean, why didn't you do that? I mean, because you, you, you know, I mean, this is going to keep happening. As you, There'll be other moments like this. Are you preparing for those things? Even if it requires you have to do some of these things to win. So we are heading back to court, back to the Second Circuit this Friday um, to defend our win to restore um, the presidential primary. Um, and if they lose again and appeal again, it will go to the Supreme Court. And so absolutely, we like no one's taking this sitting down because, again, it's not even about this particular instance. The stakes are very, very high because the principle of the democratic process and constitutional freedoms are not something we can take for granted. We have to be constantly vigilant, especially amidst the crisis, especially when our president has already said it. He's looking. He's looking for an excuse. Jonathan, isn't Nadler on your side, though? I mean, we just saw him, like, beating the hell or doing his best. I don't think he's that tough, quite frankly. And he's, you know, maybe a little slow. But we saw him trying to beat the heck out of the president and the impeachment trust. I mean, isn't he on your side? <laughs> I would, you know, frankly, and we've said this all a lot, like, we're all on the same team. We're on team civilization. We're on team humanity. And anyone from any walk of life any ideology or, or, or partisan background who wants to be on that team is welcome with open arms. But you're running against, okay, so listen, whoever has a D next to their name, okay, on November 3rd is going to win your precinct. Gary Nadler took that, I think, as 172,000 votes uh, in 2016. Okay, so the real competition here is on June 23rd between Correct. you, Nadler, and maybe this third potential party. The, the, what I'm trying to figure out is you have to, in order to decide to, like, obviously you live in the 10th, so, like, that's where you have to run, but you must also differentiate yourself from Nadler besides just saying he's old, I'm young, right? Right, so, so at, at, at every opportunity, Nathan, and, you know, from, from the first week of the campaign, we were on the the number one Fox, you know, cable news TV show and every interview thereafter with every um, major publication. Um, we've, 
maintained humanity first because um, I mean, is Nadler inhumane? It's 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 not about Nadler at all. It's actually kind of totally orthogonal, independent from him. The fact is, COVID has killed more Americans than died in the Vietnam War, a 9-11 death toll every single day, and Congress has been on recess. It's not about him. It's not about me. It's about the fact that 20,000 New Yorkers have died, 30 million Americans are unemployed, we've entered the next Great Depression, and our federal government is asleep at the switch. So we're fighting for a universal basic income and dozens of other policy solutions because we're falling apart. And tragically, and this is what Andrew Yang said and what led him to decide to run in the first place, this random entrepreneur, right? No one is in the wings. No one is in the wings to come save us. There are no adults in the room. And we have to save ourselves and offer a new alternative and a new way forward because tragically, no one is in the wings. So, I mean, what the sale you're giving me, by the way, is from what I can hear is the system is broken. I won't say bad things about now. The system is broken. People are dying. Congress isn't doing their job. They're not even there. You know, all this stuff, there's no one in the wings. So I just don't understand how that is a mobilizing message for a lot of people, especially Nadler voters who voted for him previously to switch over to you. I mean, don't you have to have concrete policies that are different between you and him to win? Absolutely. And unfortunately, he's one of the representatives who has not and will not sign on to direct cash transfers to Americans. Why is that? That's a great question. What's he say? Uh, He has no response. This is why I run. I... I did not set out to run for Congress. If you follow me on Instagram, you can see as such. I reached out to our leading politicians, academics, journalists, civil rights leaders, particularly in the context of this district. Again, my home, which is the gayest district in the country, the most Jewish district in the country. And I said, it's not even about the system. Don't even think about the country. It's about enlightened self-interest. If you look at what's happening in Borough Park, which is the parts of South Brooklyn that are gerrymandered to be in the district. We're seeing 30 to 40% poverty rates and a level of anti-Semitic hate crimes to the point where hate crimes have doubled last year alone, two thirds of which were anti-Semitic. People getting beat, um, hit in the head with stones, synagogues being graffitied. This is just normal life. Um, And so it's waking people up to the fact in the context of this district that what we saw happen in Europe this max exodus of the Jewish population there um, has, unfortunately, the, the Jewish community, at least in the United States, has had this peaceful and secure um, life now for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And that's beginning to come into question. Um, and if you look at the last time we entered the Great Depression, if you look at Germany in 1928, you see a one-to-one correlation between the rise in unemployment um, post-1928 and the Nazi seats in the Reichstag. Dictatorship was democratically elected. After hyperinflation, the devaluation of the mark. Yeah, and what, the, ca- what caused the hyperinflation? Well, so again, by, by all accounts, the collapse of the global economy and no but that wasn't i mean if you look at the treaty of versailles to effectively end world war one the allied powers put via that treaty significant reparations that germany owed the allied powers and when they quickly realized actually the u.s after the treaty was passed 
the U.S. then called essentially that debt in the 1930s, pre-World War II. And what happened is Germany couldn't pay it back. So they started printing money. And that is where you saw the massive inflation occur to the point where the mark was basically invaluable. And that's essentially what Dick, uh, you know, Hitler used to rise to power for the second time. So it was really, a, I mean, it was really a debt question caused by the Americans. Well, you know, this is in part, you know, I'm, I was excited to see you share uh, this kind of passion and excitement around Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency, you know, founded after the financial crisis, which we still haven't recovered from, learned the lessons from, um, or really changed any of our... What should we have learned from, from, 20, from 2008? We, we printed $4 trillion for, for the banks. And... Um, we basically held no Wait, Jonathan, sorry, that's not true. Because I mean, if you look at the federal balance sheet after 2008, basically went from 900 billion to about 2 trillion. And a lot of that money over three, you know, 3 billion lent out to the banks was paid back in terms of 3.6 billion. The government actually taxpayer money actually made interest on the money from the banks, which is very different from what's happening now, by the way, which is this money is going out in the form of grants where we make nothing and our tax dollars are just flowing out to the rich. So, so, I mean, maybe don't use 2008, maybe use what's happening right now as a better example of what you're trying to advocate for. Yeah, I mean, we don't even, to your point, we don't even have to look at more than a decade ago. We can look at right now, where the multi-trillion dollar response to COVID, a tiny, tiny fraction has gone to direct cash relief and grants to people, families, and small businesses. Um, and this is the fundamental script we have to flip, which is if you're a small business, if you're an entrepreneur, if you have skin in the game and have built your own enterprise, you're left out to drive. Um, but if you're a large multinational, let's say you're Amazon, you're paying uh, essentially zero in federal taxes, um, then you're getting direct, <laughs> direct, direct support. And so we have to rebalance the scales and rewrite the rules so that people who want to start businesses can. Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, walk me in terms of corporations and I mean, just sort of headline actually on Twitter, like Elon Musk is a Tesla's performance looking at a $700 million essentially payout from equity. I mean, talk to me about CEO pay. Do you feel like this is contributing to inequality? Certainly. If you look at the data over the past number of decades, the returns to capital and the returns to C-suite has outpaced and the gap has, has outpaced the returns to labor. There's a lot of reasons for this, but part of the whole message and the, driving impetus behind the Freedom Democrats and the Yang gang is we're trying to raise the floor, not lower the ceiling. The emphasis is on a universal basic income, an idea that was supported from the likes of Milton Friedman and has been in effect in Alaska for almost four decades in a deep red Republican conservative state, supported by Greg Mankiw, George Bush's chief economist, supported now by Anthony Scaramucci <laughs> and um, even Steve Mnuchin at times. Um, and so it is bipartisan um, because the kind of really um, conservative economic value of um, not having government bureaucracy decide and make choices for you, but empowering people with their own agency and liberty to live the lives they, 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 they choose to lead um, is both, it's simultaneously a progressive principle. This is what Martin Luther King was fighting for in his last um, days before he was assassinated. Um, but also, again, what Milton Friedman um, argued for and a thousand economists um, argued to Congress. This actually passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice. 
1971 and almost became law under Nixon. Yeah, I don't um, think there's a lot of people, by the way, I don't think there's a lot of people listening right now that would be necessarily against UBI, but it's like, it's the, here's where I think most the Democrats, right? And I talk about the Republicans and the Democrats and me, I never tell people what I am because quite frankly, I'm a rational guy that can be convinced of anything. That's the real answer. I'm allowed to change my mind and I do it all the time. But like, if I was rooting for one party and let's say it was the Democrats, and the problem is like the mixed messaging. And what I mean by that is, I mean, let me ask you, actually, you mentioned during Yang's campaign, the enemy was essentially automation. And we can argue about, you know, was that effective or not versus an individual person driving the automation, maybe, you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, right? But in your opinion, is automation good or bad? The reality is technology is ambivalent. And we often see the destructive power of technology come to the fore before its creative potential. Um, And this is true whether you're building trains and railroads or gunpowder or artificial intelligence and software. And so technology can be bad or good. There's nothing inevitable to it. I mean, when you, I just read a great book by Carlotta Perez about technical revolutions and basically another one by Jeff Booth, The Price of Tomorrow, that basically argues ever since 1971 in Santa Barbara, when Intel introduced their chip and Moore's law, technology is always deflationary. It will bring, it should bring prices down. And the issue we've seen over the last 50 years is you have the US government with an inflation target of 2%. So you have printing money to try and keep an inflation target while tech continues to advance and Moore's law doubles more and more frequently and, and they compete with each other. So you have this massive divergence. That divergence also correlates ironically, to the gap between rich and poor, because when the Fed prints money, it's not evenly distributed to your point earlier. So one of the questions I find myself asking a ton is why are we obsessed with the unemployment numbers? Wouldn't it be a healthier view to say, what if everyone worked less to spend more time with families to take care of themselves? Let's say they only worked one day a week and we let technology decrease the price of things. You could buy the same with only one, you know, day a week sort of income. Isn't the better question to say, how do we drive unemployment up and that automation take over so we're more efficient? So certainly the primary issue is the absence of cash. And so even before this crisis, you know, by by all accounts, nearly 50% of Americans cannot afford an unexpected $500 bill. And so people have, you know, one, two, three, four jobs, multiple gigs, right? Um, but they don't have enough cash. So that is exactly why proponents of technology and automation like Musk, like Sam Altman, um, and many techies in Silicon Valley um, have, have come on board with a universal basic income because they, they see firsthand what you're describing, which is we automate millions of the manufacturing jobs, millions of the retail jobs, of call center jobs, of truck driving and transportation jobs over the coming years. That's half of all American jobs. But we, we shouldn't be focused on protecting jobs. We should be focused on protecting people and what people need to start their businesses, to um, pursue um, their passion, to you know, do what they want to do is they need cash. They need capital. See, I would argue what they actually need is to make a dollar go further. So even if you give everyone 2000 bucks a month, but you then model some form of inflation because there's more money in the system, you potentially cannot, there's not a direct, like there's not necessarily a direct correlation. So like the question I always find myself asking, and I like putting in front of folks like you is how do you, how do you decouple someone's job from all of their income? And at the same time, make sure that the fed stops printing so much money 
So for example, if they go into, you know, inflationary periods always benefit asset holders, the person that owns your building that you pay rent to, your rent's going to go up because they just took more debt, right? Because money was available and they have to cover that. So things like you just saw food and rent go up and other things get cheaper. So the question is, how do you do both? Like, how do you make sure prices keep coming down while also giving people a stronger base to start from? Yeah. So this is such an important question. And your, your take on it is very perceptive because we, we use inflation as this kind of catch-all terms. But to your exact point, actually, if you look at the core drivers of inflation today, it's education, housing, and healthcare. These highly broken, highly regulated markets. And if you take education as an example, where um, the increase in tuition has um, outpaced you know, inflation by and it's, you know, a really shocking order of magnitude going up, I think, 250% over the past just even uh, two and a half decades or so. But has the value of a college degree, has the quality of the education really gone up? Um, that's, that's questionable. But Jonathan, can you blame, I mean, can you blame, let's look at education for a second. Can you blame colleges for increasing their price when they know the federal government will give a lot of cheap money to students to pay the increased price? Wouldn't you increase prices if you ran a business and you knew there was free money to pay you? Exactly. And you're, that's why you're exactly right, Nathan. The, the, the system is working exactly as designed. There's nothing really awry because all of the incentives are such that if you're the federal government, you give someone a $100,000 loan, no questions asked, to go to law school, right? Um, but if someone wants to start a small business, they're going to have to do an incredible amount of hoop jumping and go through an incredible amount of red tape to get basic access to grants and startup capital. And so this is the fundamental change we have to make. And the reality is that college is not the be-all, end-all. Right. And I think, you know, this very well, where, you know, only one in three people even have um, a college degree in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and of those who have a college degree, almost half are underemployed. So they're working in a job or a field that doesn't require um, that degree. And and I think, you know, what what you've shown and many others, um, you know, working in technology in particular is that these institutions which have peddled this particular narrative that you know to to be saved to have a secure stable livelihood you have to get a college degree those narratives are falling apart talking about narratives that are falling apart democrats spend so much time focused on increasing minimum wage which in my opinion is such a waste of energy energy that could be better spent on arguing for ubi and the reason i look at this is because when you look at a company like mcdonald's right if they realize they can replace the cashier with a robot and it's cheaper you want to incentivize that increased efficiency because ideally it eventually reflects itself in cheaper prices of hamburgers what you instead have are unions and elizabeth warren and other democrats arguing for higher minimum wage wages, which will only accelerate people looking to replace human, more expensive humans with robotics. Why can't and why isn't the Democratic Party united, you know, around ignoring spending energy and time and all this on minimum wage and instead focusing on how to get a program like the Freedom Dividend in place? So this is a great question. And it's not even conjecture. It's not even theoretical, where McDonald's formally committed and invested in the AI um, to essentially do that, just that um, with drive drive-throughs, with um, automated um, uh, machines to to order and take orders, and not even just on the front end, on the back end, even in the food production and the burger flipping, um, 
So this really is one of the fundamental challenges. But historically, to kind of unpack why this is the case, the base of the Democratic Party was the um, unionized labor manufacturing base. And this was the case for nearly a half century. Um, and to your point, I mean, there was really only one voice in the in the presidential race who was, you know, perhaps even calling out the reality that, you know, it's not about <laughs> um, bringing the old jobs back. There's there's no going back. Um, and and we're seeing this now. More people are, are are catching on. Is that the firms that are you know laying off and furloughing um, tens of thousands of workers? Um, they're not going to rehire them, unfortunately, at the end of this crisis. And I think I think your question is apt, and it's the reason I'm running. It's the reason there's a wave of of Yang Gang running, because again, you might think, well, reason is on our side, or the facts are on our side. That is not enough. So you do uh, not support you do not support a fifteen dollar minimum wage, yes or no? That is not the priority. The priority is to put cash directly into people's hands through a universal basis. Okay, account. let's talk about that. What does that cost annually? Let's say Jonathan gets his way, it's approved tomorrow. What's it cost? So the headline cost is much lower than one would think, but it's on the order of to two and a half trillion dollars. Okay, now take out the, you would obviously articulate that the net cost is gonna be lower because you're gonna pull out a lot of welfare programs and other stuff. What things would you, what things do you feel UBI replaces? So the goal is to build a floor, a foundation, right? Capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. But, and you know this as, you know, someone, you know, steeped in P&Ls and um, and, and business accounts. What gives you that impression? <laughs> we have a revenue problem as well as an expense problem in the, in the, in the federal government. And the, the key move we have to make is to pass a broad-based consumption tax, a value-added tax. And what this will let us do is if we pass a value-added tax, which almost every other industrialized economy in the world has, in, in Europe, the average VAT is around 20%. Mm-hmm. If we pass a value-added tax of around 10%, which is the most efficient way for us to capture the gains, especially in a realm of software and artificial intelligence, where in the United States, we love to tax labor. We love to tax human labor. But we should recalibrate and incentivize the things we want more of, which is more jobs, more human labor, more productivity, and ratchet up the value-added tax on things like artificial intelligence, like luxury consumption, um, and the like. So if we pass um, a 10% value added tax, that on its own conservatively would bring in 800 billion um, annually new revenue into the system. And this continues and grows in perpetuity because, um, again, it's like oxygen in the system, where if you think about like your, your phone or your computer or what have you, there's all these components in the value chain, right? the silicone, the glass, the aluminum, the plastic, what have you. And what a value added tax enables us to do is get a tiny slice. Every single Amazon sale, every single Facebook ad, every single Google ad, Uber mile, and eventually every autonomous vehicle mile, right? Especially as more and more people get pushed to the wayside. Mm -hmm. So that's really the key component is um, this can most certainly be deficit neutral in, in large part because we're just missing on all this cash, all this capital sitting on the table. 
because we don't have a value added tax in place. Pure Thai food house on 9th and 52nd, my favorite spot. Okay. $13 for their pad Thai. If they're now, you know, having to pay an extra 10%, don't they just increase and add that? And now that same pad Thai costs 15 bucks. So if you look at the data on the implementation of a value added tax, again, on average in Europe of double the level being proposed, a small fraction of the increase in the value added tax does get transferred onto the consumer. But because it's at every single part of the value chain, right? So all the cost of goods sold, all the components in the packaging, um, it's a self-reinforcing tax because if you're the manufacturer of, uh, let's say, I don't know, the like Thai food box, right? And there's some metal component, there's some paper component, uh, and what have you, you have an incentive to collect and make sure that the upstream supplier has paid their 10% tax as well. So by the data, um, yes, a small fraction of the costs will be passed on to consumers. But the kicker is, we're not just sending this revenue, this cash to go sit in the federal government and get lost somewhere in the pipes. We're using the most direct and efficient way of direct aid to people, which is then transferring it at turn through the freedom dividend, right? Mm -hmm. So if you spend, to your point about consumption patterns and making your dollar go further, if you spend less than $120,000 a year on stuff, then you are so much better off. And that's basically 94% of all people in the United States because there's money coming in from oxygen in the system, from all the transactions, all the production, all the manufacturing, and then money going out directly to people. And that completes and reinvigorates the entire cycle um, and has this multiplying effect in the economy. One of the things, you know, complexity kills any good plan. So the simpler someone can make this, the more effective. And the simplest thing is there's people dying from a virus right now, give people money as fast as possible. That's real simple, right? When that, I don't want to call it an advantage, but when that doesn't exist, part of the things with the VAT tax that people debate about is even to your point, you just said, if you give a 10% value added tax, including the restaurant, including Amazon, including a Facebook ad, you know, national GDP in the States is 21 trillion bucks. 10% of that would be, you know, significantly more than 800 billion in new income. It'd be more like, you know, 2 trillion in income. So when you tell me 800 billion in revenue from the VAT tax, instead of 2.2 trillion, what that tells me is you've meticulously thought through who would have to pay that tax, which companies would of the 22 trillion in GDP and which ones would not. Doesn't that add so much complexity, invite so much lobbying into the system, it makes the whole plan slow down? So, so what's great, so there's a couple of points on this. One is that about two thirds of those 21 trillion is in consumer spending on the consumption side. And then the other is that this is, to your point, actually one of the simplest. It's, it's the simplest in, in implementation, in administration, and even in communication. We're kind of walking through all the nuances um, on the back end, but very simply, as Andrew Yang had said for almost two and a half years, the Asian man wants to give you $1,000 a month for the rest of your life. Very simple message to understand. Um, and to your point, the reasoning behind it is also very simple. Now, people are literally dying. Then people are struggling, can't pay their bills. Um, and so it's actually one of the simplest things to administer because the federal government is really, really good at sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people. And we saw this now um, with the $1,200 stimulus check. Granted, it's not enough. Granted, there were some 
and many issues in the administration and hurdles. Uh, in, but in large part, Nathan, it was because it was means tested, because they added all these hurdles. You have to prove you have a tax return. You have to prove you're poor enough to get it under a certain income threshold. So what happens when we means test um, programs is we create all sorts of incentives uh, in the form of lobbying and in the form of just even personal uh, mechanisms uh, to underreport or file in a particular state or have a particular marital status or what have you. The simplest thing, the most efficient thing economically to pass is direct cash transfers directly to people. Every American, no issues, no, no process to figure out poor, rich, just everyone go start tomorrow. Exactly. All right. Let's, you have a couple of minutes to talk about data bill of rights. Uh, we do have a couple more minutes. <laughs> okay. I'll hit you with a quick question. I'm going to just make this really simple. Uh, sure. There's a lot of people arguing like Facebook has way too much power with all of its users can, you know, putting so much energy into making it what it is today. How do you make it from a regulatory perspective so that every time you or I or anyone else posts a status update on Facebook, we own that status update. Or if we put out or, or like the Google search and I'm searching for, you know, Advil in Austin, Texas. How do I make sure that I own that piece of information, not Google and monetize it via an ad network that I get nothing of? Yeah. So again, a great question, but also just grounded in reality, where if you look at the GDPR, the set of data rules in Europe, again, highly imperfect, many flaws, many issues in the implementation and the enforcement. But it's really as simple as we have this body called Congress with, with 400 you know, plus representatives, House of Representatives from across the country, and you write it into law that um, data is a property right. Data is a fundamental, um, and that this, these are fundamental rights of, of ownership. And, and just like every other positive right that we've enshrined into our constitution or through any statute, it's something you write on paper. And that makes but what does it mean though? Like this problem is like people hear you and they, I, I think they're probably listening going, I makes sense. But then like, I'm about after this interview to go write a totally. status up there on totally. Facebook. How right. do you like, in, I buy this house, I get a deed. I post a Facebook status update. What does Facebook now say? Nathan, can we pay you 50 cents? You know, before you post this update, we're paying you to own this data so we can then use it to target you with ads later. I mean, how does that actually work? Totally. So right now, so I think it's important to offer, um, the, the contrast of basically how it works now, right? So Facebook is a great example, right? So you log in, we all agree with, you know, without having read any of the click wrap agreements, we've signed and provided our consent for our data um, to be sold and resold. We saw this happen in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where if even a friend or a friend of a friend, um, they're, you know, 60 million people. Um, and we, and the way we interact with our data is as such. I got a push notification from Facebook saying, hey, we apologize. We're so sincerely sorry. You were one of the 60 million whose friends or friends of friends data may have been breached in the Cambridge Analytical scandal. Sorry. And in any other context, any other sector of the economy, um, that just would not hold. Mm -hmm. And the reality is data is the new oil. And Yuval Harari put it best. He said, whoever controls the algorithms is the government. And so there are many ways to fundamentally rethink. So, um, so people like Tristan Harris and other design ethicists, like this goes into the fundamental architecture of the apps and how we interact with the software. So right now we just assume we're gonna get a freemium service, right? 
we're going to get the free service, whether that be Google Maps or the search engine or Facebook or what have you, in exchange for our data. But we're not even making that choice consciously. It's just how it is. And so the point is, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. So, so put a pop-up are, up everywhere. Well, I mean, so there's, there's, there's some alternatives around in, informed and active consent, making you more aware. But those don't really tend to work. Because again, there are these like dozens of pages of legalese and complex information that any rational consumer would accept because you want the benefits of the service. Yeah. And a lot, by the way, a lot of companies, by the way, because of GDPR, because consumers are now expecting a GDPR pop-up are getting consumers to accept that because they know they're going to accept it. And they're getting way more information than it would have gotten earlier. It didn't actually do what it's supposed to do. Exactly. And so this is some of the great limitations of, of the use of disclosure as this regulatory kind of panacea where Sometimes, actually, to your point, if I give you more and more and more information, this is the kind of Hux, um, Huxley-in world we, we, we live in now, where there's just constant, constant misinformation, disinformation, information everywhere. It actually makes it easier for the firm um, and harder for you. That's right. And so having data as a privacy right, or data as a property right, rather, could mean that when you, let's say, if you choose to go onto Facebook, you can have a choice. You know, you can basically have a dial that says, if I, let's say, pay $9.99 for the service, and they've actually run tests, and they see how much are you willing to pay in exchange for certain privacy trade-offs. And we all have our own point. You know, I may value that at $4.99. You may value it at $13.99. The point is, you can reconfigure it so that you have a choice. And you can I don't I don't ever see that actually. I just do not see that actually happen. It sounds great in practice. I don't see it happen. Here's what I'm going to end on this question. You can have a short, a long question, however you want. Jack Dorsey said many times that if he could figure out a way to decentralize Twitter, he would, to your point, right? And we're talking specifically about blockchain. What if every, you know, there's a hundred Twitter blocks, there's a hundred Twitter coins, and they're split up into little tenths of a thing based off like who's the most prolific tweeters that get the most retweets and likes, right? Twitter did revenue of $3.46 billion over the trailing 12 months. There's tax revenue for the, there for the states. If a company and a utility, many would argue, like Twitter, is now run on blockchain, which is controlled by no government, right? But it does fit in this utopia version of we now own all of our data finally. There is no Jack Dorsey. There is no Jeff Bezos. There is no central figure getting wealthy. How do you make money as a government? How do you pay it? Where's the tax? Yes. So there's, there's so much here. And I think this is really really exciting because this is the vanguard. This is the bleeding edge. And we just saw the recent having day, right? Where um, the the block wasn't, you know, was was mined in China, not in the United States. And so we have to bring Bitcoin and blockchain innovation back to New York and back to the United States in particular, because it's been regulated away. And so I think Wyoming in particular has a model of, um, of legislation around Bitcoin and blockchain to in enable innovation to happen, to, to actually happen and develop. But that's electrical subsidies. The reason China and Iceland do so much mining is because they give electrical subsidies to miners. That's why you've had the centralization. The US, I do not think will ever give electrical subsidies to miners setting up shops in Wyoming. I completely hear you. Nothing, again, nothing is easy. No fight will ever be. We said we'd never reach the moon. We said we would never have social security. We said we would never have Medicare. There's a lot of things that seems impossible. And to your point and to the whole thrust of this conversation, um, and really to what Friedman said in, in, in 1962, the politically impossible only becomes the inevitable in times of crisis. And it's incumbent upon all of us to push and push and bring those ideas to the fore so that in those moments, 
those ideas can come to the table and become reality. Jonathan Herzog turning 25 here in a couple of days. He needs 30,000 votes on November 3rd to displace Jerry Nadler in the New York Congressional District number 10. Jonathan, good luck, man. Go get those votes. Thank you so much. And please, please do chip in what you can at Herzog2020.com. Spell it. H-E-R-Z-O-G 2020.com. We take uh, cash and crypto contributions on our website. I can tell you exactly $18 puts our ads in front of 1,943 registered Democrats in the district. And if you scale that up, if you max out and pitch in $2,800, you can get our ad, our name, our vision, this shared vision for our country <laughs> in front of every single registered Democrat in the district to make this happen. Herzog 2020, guys, check it out. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. All right, guys, what do you think? Can Jonathan Herzog get it done on June 23rd with 30,000 votes? We will see. If you have questions about his freedom dividend, his data bill of rights, or his thoughts on blockchain in the future, we have interviews coming up every weekend, every weekday. We've got an interview coming out with a new founder every day at 2 p.m. Eastern. We go live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. And we do great long-form interviews like this, which we release about once or twice a week. I don't want you to miss any of them. Thanks so much, guys, for your support.